crazy love. We've been talking about crazy love for some weeks, and it's, you know, it's, it's a great week for us. I see that Dan Isles is back. You went to Egypt this time, is that right? Egypt and Jordan, and he's back from that trip, that mission trip. We just praise the Lord for what's happening and the, the, the national pastors there. And uh, We have somebody that's engaged. Can, oh, can I say that? Okay. Danielle was showing me a ring, so, uh, and I asked her who the guy was. Hank said it was him, so I don't know. So congratulations, congratulations. There's any number of different ways of getting yourself embarrassed from this platform, just so you know. Crazy love, God's crazy love, ultimate love. God's crazy ultimate love is, is not just an emotion. It is an emotion, but it's more than that. It's a choice. The agape love that we see in the Bible is more than just an emotional love. It's not just a phileo love. It's not just a friendship love. It is more than that. And we are commanded to love. You cannot command someone to love unless it's a choice. So we have the choice to love or to not love. And you make thousands of choices, right? Did you make some choices today? I, I was doing this with the Awana kids a while back. I was thinking a, a couple of weeks ago we were given a, a gift card to, to Olive Garden. So we went to, we went to Olive Garden. Now go to Olive Garden because you have no choices, right? Is that right? The first thing they say to you is, Soup or salad? Well, after, you know, the drinks, you got to, you know, iced tea or Diet Coke. Those are the only two options I have. But, you know, then they, then they say soup or salad. And if you say soup, then they say there's four. There's that chicken and nochi or whatever it is, pasta fajol, minestrone, zupica toscana. And so you say, well, okay, I'll take soup. You only have four choices. And then you, you think, I want pasta. Do you realize what you've just done? Do you want, uh, I listed some, spaghetti, ziti, uh, fettuccine, tortellini, ravioli, linguine, capellini, uh, angel hair pasta, yeah. And then what kind of sauce on the pasta? It's like, come on, just give me some spaghetti and some lettuce and let me go. You, you make choices all the time. But your choice to love is so much more important than your choice of food, and yet sometimes we agonize more of our choice of food than we do our choice of how to serve Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to have this ultimate love, this ultimate choice. And, and who do you choose to love and what level do you choose? Look at what John talks about in John 15. In his crazy love, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this. Ultimate love. The ultimate love is this, that he laid down his life for his friends. That's the ultimate choice. The greater love has no one than this. Ultimate love is, is a love worth living for. Ultimate love is a love worth dying for, Jesus said. And he asks us today to make a choice. And with that choice, there are a lot of other choices. So here's where we're going with this. If God's crazy love is ultimate love, what do you choose? And who do you choose to love? And how can you build that love so it's the ultimate love? Let's look, take a look at that. John 15 is an incredible chapter. I wish we had time for the whole thing. We're going to look at John chapter 15. If you have your Bible, turn to John 15 verses 9 through 14. Jesus was making some choices. He'd come to the very end of his ministry after 30 years of living on this earth and then three years of ministry on top of that. At about age 33, Jesus knows the ministry is coming to the end. He's had the, already had the last supper with the disciples. And then he gives these parting words. He says, I'm, here's something really important for you to know. John 15, look at verse 9. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain, abide, your, your text may say, abide. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain, you will abide. You're going to, you're going to house yourself in, in my love. Just as I have obeyed my Father's com commands 
and remain. Third time he's used that term, and remain, abide in his love. Verse 11, I've told you this. So that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. My love is heightened. It's, it's raised to a new level. It's, it's heightened by reborn desires. That's what we need to understand. Jesus is talking to this group and he says, listen, I know you guys have, have goals and desires and, and dreams and aspirations, but you need to raise those dreams, those aspirations. You need to re- heighten your desires. And what does he say? He emphasizes from the very beginning, number one, long to maximize God's presence. Long to maximize God's presence. Do we maximize the presence of anybody that we're with? Do you maximize that presence? You know, when you're young and you're in love and, and you know, you're just getting started, do you notice how everything they do is fascinating? The way she holds her fork. The way the spaghetti sauce drips down her chin. I, I, need, I saw her driving and I just thought, she's so gorgeous when she drives. I, you, you know, when you're first in love and you just, every, every little thing has this nuance. And, and then over a period of time, you get to just expect things. Married couples, how many of you have been married at least 30 years? Raise your hand if you've been married at least 30 years, okay? Do you maximize every minute with that person? You're thinking, yeah, well, I spend time, you know. I put up with him. He reads the paper during the meals and he watches television and he's a Giants fan and he's hoping they're going to win and that's all he can think about. Do I maximize my time with my my Savior? He says, remain in my love. Uh, One definition is to tuck in, to stay close. He says, I want you to tuck in with me. I want you to stay close. I want you to to really stay by my side. There There was a time that I was working in a, in a bank when I was in college many, many years ago, and I was working in this bank, and uh, I was one of the first ones that would get in sometimes on Saturday morning, and the, the woman who normally works Saturday mornings had a problem. She couldn't do the combination. She could do it. She just couldn't get the, the vault to open. And so many times I would get in, and she would say, would you come over here, and here's the combination. She wasn't supposed to give me the combination, but she would give it to me, and I'd open the vault and, and open it up, and one day I got there on a Saturday, and she said, uh, would you open the, the vault? I just can't get it open. She said, I've already taken the alarm off. And so she gave me the combination. I opened it up and, and things were going well until the policeman showed up uh, right behind me with a shotgun that was, or whatever, some rifle thing. It, it looked like a huge shotgun to me because it was a gun pointed at me. And he says, just put your hands where I can see them. Yes, <laughs> got that part. What else do you want? And then I said, the bank manager, she gave me the combination, and, and she was right there, and she said, yes, I did, and she was doing this too. And he said, you two get over there together. And I mean, it was like, okay, we're together. Remain in my love and maximize the presence of the person that you're with. Because it's sometimes when you're under stress, what we do is we tend to separate from God. And God says, that's not what I want you to do. I want you to to remain in my love. Resist the temptation to flee from God. Isn't all of the Bible about people trying to flee from God? God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to go to this horrible capital. I want you to go to the capital, the place of the people who hate you the most. 
Jonah, I want you to go to Baghdad. That would be for us. Jonah, I want you to go to Korea. I want you to go to, I want you to, go to this nation that hates you and wants to wipe you off of the face of the earth. And I want you to go to their capital and I want you to preach to them. And Jonah said, I'll get back to you on that. And the Lord says, go east. And what does he do? He says, I, I'm going to go west. I'm going to go the other direction. And he gets in a ship. And you saw how well that worked out for Jonah, right? The first submarine ride ever in a, in a great fish for three days. And then you have the indignity of being thrown up. The only man I've ever known that says, well, I was thrown up by a great fish. How, how about you? What's, your, you know, what's your claim to fame? He was running from God. And you say, well, that's just one story. How about David? I love the story of David. David has been anointed as a child king, and he's, he's been told this is what's going to happen, and, and all of a sudden he has to run for his life, and he's in the caves, and for a long time he does well, and 300 uh, men come to him. They're the outcasts of society. They're the dregs of society who nobody else wanted, and they come, and they become David's mighty men, and he makes them into an army. But even David, after a while, gets to the, gets to the point where he says, I want to run. 1 Samuel 27, 1 says, the best thing I can do, David is, is saying this, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip through his hands. The best thing to do is to run? David, did God say you were going to be the king? Well, yeah. Did he say he was going to be with you? Yeah. Are you a man after God's own heart? Well, yeah. David, what are you doing running away from where God wants you to be? Well, he can't find me over there. I've got news for you. If God's hand is on you, Saul could not find David if David walked into the throne room. And we don't get that. What's interesting about that time when David had run from the Lord and he went to the Philistines, there's no recorded Psalms except maybe Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 7. And he starts the psalm in verse 1 where he says, O Lord, you've searched me and known me. And then it says in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? David understood finally he can't flee from God. Sometimes we pray and we say, Lord, join us here today. i got news for you. He's already here. If you're far from God, it's not because God has wandered away. It's because you have wandered away. It's because I have wandered away. And we've been fleeing from His presence because there's something in our life maybe that we know shouldn't be there. Why don't we live like that? Why don't we maximize God's presence? If He's here anyway, why don't we maximize that? Our society, the Western society, was one time saturated with that. C.S. Lewis was writing about it one time, and he talked about a God consciousness, that, that we've lost the God consciousness. He wrote this in 1958. He says, thinking of God was not a contrived effort for those who went before, a studied art. Why? Desperation. It's how people lived and breathed. They needed the conscience. They needed the conscious presence of Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you something, folks. The number one complaint that I have, I don't know if it's a complaint, the number one concern that I have, people come to me all the time and they say, Pastor, I'm praying, and it just is like the prayers bounce off the roof. It's, it's like I'm praying and, and I don't feel God. I don't sense God's presence. And, and I have had this young, old, Christians who've been around 50 years, Christians who are new in the faith, all of a sudden they say, I don't, I don't sense God's presence with me. What's happened? And they use words like, frustrating and exhausting and terrifying and we talk about unconfessed sin is there something in your life and we talk about the, the root of bitterness have is there some bitterness that's, that's kept you away from the lord or unresolved anger or or unforgiveness but 
Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's because even though we go through the motions and we read the Bible and we pray and we study and we even come to church, when you get to the, I'm coming back to the heart of worship, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And you're checking your watch. And it's all about time and comfort and style. Paul chastised Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4. He said, you're causing a division in the church. And what, what did he say to them? It, it, that's in Philippians 2, uh, 4, 2 and 3. And then verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord. Right after he chastises them, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Let me tell you again, ladies, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Go back to the Lord. Maximize what the Lord has done. Rejoice in Him. Forget about this other woman and the division that's there. Rejoice in the Lord. And the very next verse, in verse 5, it says, because the Lord is near. He's here. Long to maximize God's presence. And number two is long to replicate Christ's example. And you can just, if you don't want to write that down, say long to be like Christ if you want to. I want to be like Him. I want to be like Jesus Christ. John 15 comes between the the Lord's Supper, the the Last Supper and the cross. Just hours after they they have that that first communion, what we get our communion time from, then he's going to go to the cross. And he knows he's just about, he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He knows what's going to happen. And what does Jesus do? He has those hours. What does he do? John 13, 1. Look at what happens right at the beginning of the time. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Get this. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen that night. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the ultimate love. I mean, isn't that what we're talking about, the ultimate love? He, sh- he showed them what? The full extent of his love. You're in John 15 anyway. Go back to John 13 for just a minute. Do you see what happened? Jesus, verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God, was returning to God So, because he knew that he had been given all power and all things, so he did what? He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Do you get that? The one who created everything with a word was washing dirty feet. The one who came was going to go to the cross is washing the feet of those people that he had spent three years with and who were still clueless as to what happened many times. Jesus said, listen, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to lower myself, as it were, and I'm going to show you what servant love is. He showed them the full extent of his love by doing what? By servant love, by servant leadership. And he humbled himself to wash dirty feet. I think it's interesting that there were 12 disciples there that night. Peter, who was going to deny that he'd ever even heard the name, that he was not from Galilee. Peter, who was going to deny Christ three times, even after he'd been warned that he would do it before the end of the night. Peter, who knew all of that, was there. And when he came to Peter, Peter says, you can't wash my feet, Lord. You know why Peter said that? Because he was the one that was supposed to wash the feet. It was his job that night. 
We know that because of some of the way that the, the table seating went with John and others that were there. And the way that it looks, it looks as if Peter was the last one seated. The last one seated was to be the one that was to go and wash the feet. Peter said, you can't wash my feet because Peter knew he should have been washing the feet. But the other person's feet that he washed, who was not the last one in, who was right there with Jesus close enough so he could dip the bread with him, was Judas. The man who was going to not only deny him, but betray him and send him to the cross. Jesus washed Judas's feet. You really want to be like Christ? Do you really want to follow that example? Jesus took off those clothes and he humbled himself. How can we love like that? Number one, if you want to write some things underneath this, uh, letter A, small letter A would be commitment. What am I willing to die for? What am I willing to live for? What am I willing to do for Jesus Christ? What is my commitment to Christ? Well, you know, Lord, as long as it doesn't cost me too much, as long as it's not too uncomfortable, you know, Lord, I could do a lot of things. Washing feet? No, I don't think so. You know, I just had my nails done. Couldn't really do that. You know, I got bad knees. Really can't get down and wash feet. And Lord, you know, I I can do some other things, but don't make me do that. And Jesus says, no, do you love me? He had all things under his power, all things at his disposal. And what does he do? He humbled himself and became obedient as a servant, not only to death. The other thing, not only is commitment, but conditioning. You know why Jesus could do this at the end of his life? It's, it, it, Hebrews is really fascinating. As I'm reading through the Bible again, I've run across some things in Hebrews. It says that the suffering of Jesus completed. And Jesus was fully God, fully man. How, how could it complete him? But it was a training process. The man side of Jesus, I believe. And it says that the suffering completed Jesus in a way that we need to be completed. It's conditioning. It's training. Kathy and I both take pictures. Uh, For many, many years, I was the one who took all the official family pictures. You can tell if you look in our picture albums because most people's heads are cut off right above the eyebrows up, or you have half of their face, or the picture is somewhat askew, or I mean, I'm, I'm really very bad at taking pictures, but I didn't realize that. I was not real slow. It took me 25 years to figure it out. I'm not, but I'm really not a good photographer. Kathy has a camera, and I have a camera, and we went to Yellowstone, and And she said, well, I'll take some pictures. And then she gives me this little camera. She said, you take your pictures with this. I don't even think it had a digital card in it. I I just think she was, you know, going through the... No, it really did. I was taking pictures. And we got to Old Faithful, and I thought, I'm taller than Kathy. I can see, you know, the crowd and the Old Faithful, and it spews up, and it was a really neat deal. The camera she gave me had a movie thing on it. And Old Faithful goes up like this. It doesn't go sideways. And so I turned the camera the long ways. I mean, that's what you do when you take it, but not in video. Do you realize that when you do video like that, you can't turn it on the computer? So now we watch Old Faithful going sideways across the screen. It's so much fun. That really looks cool. It's like a hose coming out. That's why she doesn't give me the good camera. She gives me, you take this little camera over here and you take pictures. Am I interested in photography? Absolutely. Am I trained in photography? Absolutely not. Have I spent the time? My practice is sporadic. I'm impatient. I'm often uninspired. Kathy will stand there for hours looking and, and getting the shot just right, and she'll move over, and she'll, she'll find the little greenery that comes to the corner that really frames it out, and she frames the picture well, and she catches people's expressions that I'm not willing to wait for. We need training. And I think the third thing is, it's not only con- commitment conditioning, but it's also input. 
I, I love the Indeed. You know, we, we have the little Indeeds. And, and by the way, this is the last day of October. You need to get your November and December one out there. They're free for you. On Thursday, it said this. In many homes, the television is on more than six hours a day. Statistics have shown that even in faithful church-attending families, our children will have watched 24,000 hours of TV by the time they're 18. Am I against TV? No. But listen to that. 24,000 hours of TV by the time they're 18. In contrast, they will probably have been in church less than 3,000 hours. And I did the math on that. That's if you're here regularly every week from the time you're born to the time you're 18. The statistics don't change much for Christian adults who, by some accounts, are saturated in media five times more than in Bible study, prayer, fellowship, The subtle voices of the world have ample time to drown out the voice of the Spirit. Did you get that? We need need better input. We need to focus more on what the Lord has told us to do and less on what the world is showing us and demonstrating and being the example for. If you show up on Sunday morning, you you have an hour and 15 minutes. If you came to Sunday school, maybe two hours and 15 minutes. If you show up for Sunday night, three hours and a little plus. And if you show up for Awana, maybe four or five hours a week. Praise God, that is so much. Man, I'm at the church all the time. Your TV's on six hours a day. You understand the the contrast, the difference in the input? But, But the typical person today comes to church two out of three times or two out of four times. So it's not that consistent. Long to replicate Christ's example. Am I good at following an example? I am when I want to be. And I think you'd have to say the same thing. My love is heightened when I have reborn desires. How can I have those desires reborn? When you spend time in Christ's presence, when you begin to see the example of Christ and follow that example, it changes forever the way you feel inside. Your desires, your goals, your aspirations. Here's the second part. My love is strengthened by a new perspective. Not only are my desires changed, but my love is strengthened by a new perspective, a new viewpoint. John 15, go back there. John 15, 15 through 17 says, I no longer call you servants or slaves, doulos. I no longer call you a servant because a servant does not know his master's business. He said, I'm not just using you. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. And he says it again. Love one another. Love each other. My love is strengthened by a new perspective. Number one, focus on, on how Christ loves. How does Christ love us? What what is the command again? Love, in verse 12, love each other as I have loved you. Love like I love. Well, how does he love? Sacrificially. Jesus Christ gave his life for us, right? We know that. Are you easily distracted from that? Do you know that Jesus Christ loves you? Yes. Do you know about the cross? Yes. Has it become old hat? Absolutely. Mark Buchanan in a book called Your God is Too Safe, says this, devotion to God, the gathering up and giving over to ourselves, uh, of ourselves to God, needs to be pounded into us. Wow. You parents ever think something needed to be pounded into you? Is that true? Man, my parents, you know, 
every time I would go out, my, my dad would pound in the, you know, this is when you have to be back. This is how you're supposed to act. This needs to be pounded into us. It needs to be fixed down with rope and nails. If such devotion is ever to become second nature and something we actually want, where we derive a great joy at being His, we can't rely on it happening by nature. It comes only about by design, by our willing it even when we don't want it. I know that the most captivating, staggering, extravagant fact of all time and space that God came down, became one of us, died by us, died for us, and He did it to make it his, us His children and bride, and now walks every moment with us in love and companionship. This amazing truth I can treat as no more important than and forget as easily as my yearly car insurance renewal. It can become dull routine. One more thing to know, one more thing to worry about, one more thing to try to remember. Such a God doing such a thing surpasses all things in greatness and marvel. Nothing even remotely, even vaguely compares with it. Yet the Sunday flyers in the Sunday paper with yet another 40% off, on kitchen, 40% off sale on kitchenware at Walmart or the pages with reviews of the latest batch of books or movies or even the sports page can distract me from that great truth of God. A simple backache may ruin my joy in it. An unexpected car expense, a broken car, can steal away my thankfulness for who God is and what He's done. Is that true of you? Are you easily distracted? Uh, when I was uh, in high school, I swam on a swim team, and when I was swimming on the swim team, the coach looked at me and he said, you're going to swim the butterfly. I was not particularly good at the butterfly, and first I thought I was going to drown when I did it. I eventually learned how to do the butter butterfly, where you throw your arms up over your shoulders, and you grab the water, and you go. It's a very tough stroke. And after the coach watched me for a while, he says, hey, Knight, come over here for a second. And I said, yeah. And he says, you have a lot of strength. I said, yeah, coach. And he says, you have a lot of stamina. I said, yeah, coach. And he says, you're a lousy swimmer. And I said, yeah, coach. He said, you have too much distracted motion. I said, excuse me? He says, you know what? When you're pulling your arms because you don't clear the water, you're pushing the water this way. You're actually going backwards half of the time. You're pushing your arms the wrong way. And if you don't have your arms clear the water and come out of the water, it's called distracted motion. And you're actually beating yourself to death. And I said, well, I don't, I don't agree with that. I'm just going to swim the way I'm going to swim. He says, go ahead and try that for a while. And the next practice I came to him, I said, Coach, how do I do that deal again where I'm not drowning the whole time? And little by little, I figured out the distracted motion. And the Lord says, so much of your life is distracted motion. You're going against the very things that I've designed for you. You're wasting vital energy. We separate our life into, into what? Into sacred and, and secular, don't we? God, you can have an hour a week. God, you can have a tenth or maybe a 5%. Maybe you can have 2%. Okay, Lord, I'll give you a $20 tip on Sunday. And that's the, your sacred time. The rest is mine. It's secular. It's, it's set apart for me. And if we have something that's sacred, it's trifling. Our sacred is trifling. It's It's ironic. I was starting to get into a car one day, and as I've told you before, I love Diet Coke, especially in the morning. That is the morning drink. Forget coffee. Get a Diet Coke. Praise God. That'll get that caffeine flowing in you. If I could just do an IV, it would probably, you know, just... It, no, I'm just kidding. 
But I love Diet Coke in the morning. We were going on a trip, and I came out, and I had my big gulp Diet Coke or whatever it was, and I started to get in the car, and the guy says, uh, or the, the guy's wife says, his car is sacred. And I said, okay. And, I get, and she said, he doesn't allow drinks in his car. And I said, that is not a problem at all. I'll drive. And we did. His, he never allowed anybody to have a drink in his car. And I couldn't believe it. His car was sacred. Okay, if you feel that way, good for you. I'll drive every time. But the Lord says, what are you doing? You know, God doesn't make that same thing. That, and, and when we do things like that, we have a distracted life. The sacred becomes something that's not supposed to be. Our daughter is doing a blog for Lincoln for his Down syndrome, and in, in the blog, she wrote about uh, something about her husband, but one of the lines that she uses, a thousand half-lives must be forsaken to take our heart home. A thousand half-loves, a thousand half-loves must be forsaken to take our heart home, is the, the 13th century Persian poet who wrote that, Rumi. One more time, a thousand half-loves. What's your half-love? What half-loves do I have? The Bible never has a sacred and a secular. You know what the Bible has? He has a, the Bible has a sacred and a profane. When we use the, the term profanity, what does it mean? You take the Lord's name in vain. But the profane is more than that. The profane is taking anything that God said is sacred and making something less of it, trivializing it, abusing it, turning it inside out, discarding it. Have you done that with the life that God has given you? He said, your life is sacred to me. All of it, from the moment you were born to the time you die, your life is sacred. Have you made something less of it than what I designed it to be? If so, you've profaned what I gave you. That's serious, and we don't get that. Colossians 3.1 says, here's what you have to do. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. You have to reset your heart. You have to reset what's going on. Focus on how Christ loves you. Number two, focus on what Christ offers. Focus on what Christ offers. Listen to me. It's so important that you get this. We live in expectation rather than expectancy. You say, well, isn't that the same thing? Expectation is this. Do you have expectations? Anybody here expect the Giants to win the World Series? Raise your hand. Come on. You, yeah, there you go. I, I woke several people up there, okay? The Giants came up. You expect the Giants to win. And what you have done at that point, you have said that there's an obligation for them. They are duty-bound. You expect, that's expectations. And if you have, live in expectation with God, you say, God, you owe me. Expectancy is this. There are no, there are no boundaries. You're not setting, pre-setting the rules. You're saying, God, I know you're going to do something great in my life. And I don't know what it is, but I can't wait. That's a total difference. Focus on what Christ offers. And, and expectancy, you see, I'm reading John 15, and when he says, no longer do I call you a servant, I'm not going to call you a bond slave. I'm not going to say that you owe me service. That's what I would expect from God. And God says, I'm going to do the unexpected. I'm going to let you live in expectancy. No longer have I called you a servant. I've called you my friend. There's a song, I am a friend of God. I am a friend of God. He calls me friend. That's an, an incredible biblical concept. It's a closeness. It's letting us into the inner circle. What does Christ offer? He says, I want you to come into the inner circle. What do you do with that? 
What do you do with that kind of access? Francis Chan in his book says, what are you doing right now that requires faith? Somebody asked him this in college. What are you doing right now that requires faith? Did you get that? What are you doing in your life right now that requires a huge step of faith? Or a little step of faith? Any faith at all? Or you, are you living by the credit cards? Are you living by the design that you have? Are you living by the life that you've designed? Or are you living by faith? It says we walk by faith, not by sight. We talk about that, but do we live about like that? Boy, that stretches me. Ephesians 4.1 says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. He's called us his friends. Do we live that way? One more question. What matters the most in your life? What matters the most is what we do with what, is what, we do with what God has given us. What matters the most is what we do with what God has given us. Is my life characterized by comfort or by faith? Am I being stretched by it? Almost two years ago, at Christmas time, this church gave me an incredible gift. Some, some individuals within, in the church went together and they bought me a bicycle. You've heard about it before, right? You know, I want to tell you, after two years, I have done the best that I possibly could. I have kept that bicycle in my garage the whole time. I have oiled it. I have shined it. I have polished it. I have done... I mean, it still has the original tires and the original seat. It, it does not have a scratch on it. It does not have a blemish. It does not have a mile on it. I've never taken that bike out and ridden it at all. You say, well, that's not true, Pastor. If I had done that, how pleased would the people be with, who had gone to the trouble to buy that bike, to give it to me as a gift? How pleased would they have been with me if I had done that? They wouldn't be pleased at all then what makes us think that one day we're going to stand before the Lord and He's going to say, I gave you these gifts. What have you done? I gave you that gift. I gave you that talent. I gave you that money. What have you done with it? And we're going to stand there and we're going to say, but Lord, we polished it and we, and we aired it up and we oiled it and we kept it. And He says, I didn't want you to do that. I wanted you to get out and ride. I wanted you to grow. I wanted you to, to mature. The truth is, I have 4,000 miles on that bicycle. It's got scratches, it's got dings, it's, it's, it's had to have new seat and new tires and all kinds of things because I was given a gift and I decided I was going to use it. How about you? Focus on what Christ offers. Marshall Shelley wrote one of the most amazing things that I've read in a long time. Focusing on what Christ offers. Marshall Shelley is an editor at Leadership Magazine, a Leadership Quarterly, I get. And he, was, he had met this actor, Bruce Marciano. Bruce Marciano was the one... You remember the, the Matthew series that we did, the DVDs, where it was the story, the whole story of Matthew in the NIV, and they acted out all the parts. Well, Bruce Marciano was the one who played the part of Jesus. And in this particular scene, Jesus was denouncing and calling curses down on, uh, on unrepentant cities. And it, the line is, Woe to you, Karazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles performed in you had been performed in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. He did 367 takes on that and he couldn't get it right. Bruce just said, I, I couldn't get the voice right. How does the Messiah, the only begotten Son, God incarnate, how does He speak words of doom and damnation? How does He tell them they've blown it? Marciano then goes on to say this, I was standing in front of 500 people, cast members, 
Moroccan extras where they had filmed this. Sound and lighting crews. And suddenly, all 500 in a fraction of a second, something happened. My vision of them changed. I'm not a mystical person, but what happened was so horrible that my heart broke. I saw people living their lives in ways that God didn't plan. I saw people living their lives in ways that made God sad. The closest I can come to describing it would be what parents might feel like if they looked out the window and saw their toddler walking into the street and a truck approaching. They scream for the child to come back, but the little one keeps going into the street. Marciano broke and he wept for an hour. And then he did the same. If you remember it, there's this tear in his voice. It says, woe to you, Karazin. They did one take, and he got it right. And I think the Lord looks at us some days, and he says, I'm brokenhearted that I've given you the gift, and you've not used it. Focus on what Christ offers. Here's the last one. Focus on loving those Christ loves. Focus on loving those Christ loves. Who did Jesus love? 2 Peter 3, 9 says, He's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus says, Greater love has uh, no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But if you go to Romans chapter 5, he says that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 5, it says, While we were God's enemies, Jesus died for us. Jesus just didn't die for his friends. He died for his enemies. He died for everyone. And he longs for us to love those that he loved enough to die for. If you're you're reading through that book, Crazy Love, when you get to this chapter, it's a tough chapter. Francis Chan talks about what it means to love in a tangible sense. And I hope you've read it. But he comes to the point, and and he uses this verse, Matthew 25, 40. Look what it says. The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. It's a scene where Jesus is talking to them. He says, one day you're going to stand before me and I'm going to say, you know, you gave me a drink of water and you gave me a scrap of bread and you gave me clothes and you got me out of prison and you did this for me. And they'll say, Lord, when did we do that? When was that? And he said, I tell you the truth, whenever you did this, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Francis Chan sold his house when he came back after a mission trip and moved to a house that was about half the size. It wasn't that he was living in a mansion, but he, he moved in a 12, into a 1,200-square-foot house with his children and his wife. And since then, he's starting a new church because he is living this out. This is not just words on paper. Francis Chan has given over a million dollars to the least of these. Every penny from Crazy Love, that book, not a penny of it has gone to him. It's all gone, gone to missions in third-world countries to feed the hungry, to do those things that we've been told to do. Let me ask you a second. If Jesus showed up this morning, if he came down that aisle, how would you treat him? Would you say, just you know, sit on the floor somewhere? Would you say, well, you know, Jesus, you know, this is my normal seat. You can't sit here. You know, this is where I always sit. Is that what you would do with Jesus? You'd say, well, of course not. If Jesus showed up today, what would you do? He did. He showed up today and the least of these. And the person that maybe aggravates you the most in this church, he showed up today in ways that you could not imagine. And he says, do you love me? I was going to, to uh, meet with uh, Gary. We were having an early morning breakfast, and I was meeting with him, and I got behind a guy on the freeway, and he was going 32 miles an hour on the freeway on Thursday morning. 
I know I had him pegged. I mean, I was, I was right on his bumper. I was praying for my brother. I was praying he would get out of the way. That is a prayer. It's just not the one you thought I was praying. And the problem was, as he was in the left lane, I got behind him before I realized how slow he was going, and then the cars were going on the right. I couldn't get over. I mean, it wasn't that I was late. It wasn't that I had to be there. It wasn't like Gary wouldn't know that if I was a minute or two late. But I was steaming, and I was just like, come on. It's not even 7 o'clock. Wake up. Put your foot to the... What are you doing? Where's Mike Woods when I need him? Pull this guy over. Come on. And I got to where I was supposed to turn in, and he turned the block before, and I could see that it was a man going to the hospital. And tears were streaming down his face. I don't know who that man was. But for several miles, I didn't love him. The Lord says, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. True story, Ruby Jones is a 67-year-old nurse in New Orleans. When Hurricane Katrina came, she had eight dying patients in a hospice unit at Lindy Boggs Medical Center. Hurricane Katrina came, and they got all the other patients out of that hospital, but the hospice patients were the last ones they would take out. They knew they had less than 30 days to live. And they came to get Ruby Jones, and she said, I'm not going in before my hospice patients go. And they said, well, we can't get them out. We don't have the equipment here. We can get you. And she said, I'm not going without my hospice patients. That was on Sunday. Her children got through to her and said, Mom, don't be a superwoman. Don't do this. And she said, I'm not going before my hospice patients. The windows had blown out. The doors had been blown open. The water was rising, and she took everyone, one by one, by herself and got them up the stairs to the top floor as the water began to rise. And one by one, she found a bed for them and put them in one room. And she held their hand until the food was gone and the power was out and she held their hand and she prayed with them from Sunday till Thursday. When they got to her on Thursday, they finally got all of her patients out and they said to her, it's time for you to go. And she took one step and she collapsed. They found out that she would not drink any of the water because her hospice patients needed it more. They found out that she had not eaten since Sunday because her hospice patients needed it more. And they said, what were you doing? You're the caregiver. You should have taken care of yourself first so you could take care of them. And she said, my Jesus would not let me do it. She said, I wasn't taking care of hospice patients. I was taking care of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. What a love you show for us, Father. You gave your son, and you gave us gifts, and you gave us faith, and you gave us love. And we're so distracted, and we trivialize it, and we profane it. Forgive us. May we love those you've given us to love. The least of these not just with words, but with actions and with sacrifice, with commitment, with love. Tonight, Father, some of the least of these will be here, people that may be hard for us to love. 
May we, we treat them as Jesus Christ would want to be treated, as we would want to treat him. May we humble ourselves to do the most menial, trivial, demeaning task, if that's what you call us to do. May we be faithful to you, First Father. And may we exhibit the ultimate love that you put in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.